Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Back at the 2022 Ocean Exploration Forum, Tyler, uh, for our final show. Final show, shutting her down. And uh, the best for last, I have to say. We've had some incredible guests, but uh, I'm really looking forward to this one. Uh, We're going to be talking to a, a preeminent scientist and creative thinker, I would say, innovator, on ocean science and other topics. Absolutely. Amazing energy, visionary into the future. We're going to be talking about technology. We're going to be talking about the future of understanding the ocean today with an amazing guest. Joining us on the American Shoreline Podcast today, Dr. Alan Adams. I'm going to do a little bit of an intro here, Tyler, on Dr. Adams, because this this is not easy. Uh, An amazing career. He is the founder of the Future Ocean Lab at MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, He's a physicist by professional training and academic experience. He has produced a couple of amazing TED Talks with millions of listens back in 2014 and 2016 on, guess what, gravitational waves. Uh, He has done the introductory lectures on quantum mechanics in the MIT Open Course uh, System with more than 5 million listens, MITOpenCourseWare.com. Check it out. And he's currently the founder of Oceanic Labs and serving as an adjunct oceanographer at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute. Now, you think this guy must be 90 years old, having done all of this amazing work in his career. Not true. Vibrant and still going strong. Uh, Dr. Alan Adams, welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. Thanks so much for having me here. Well, I had the opportunity to be in a breakout session with Dr. Adams and spend a few minutes with him afterward, and we had an innovative, we had an exciting conversation about the role of science in society, and I thought, this is a guy we have to have on the podcast. Uh, We're going to be talking today about about massive ocean monitoring networks. We're going to be talking about economic incentives and how to tackle major problems on the planet through economic incentives and aligning those with ecological goals. Dr. Adams... Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to talk to us. Thanks so much for having me here. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Well, Dr. Adams, let's just start off from the very top. How would you characterize the current state of ocean exploration and how do you see things changing over the next 10 years? Yeah, that's a fun question. So um, we, you know, you'll often hear people say stuff like, well, we've only mapped like 5% of the ocean. We only know, you know, 10% of what's down there. And that's true. It's it, we we are woefully ignorant of much of what's down there. We have a a good skeletal understanding of 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 the shape and, and character of of the, the ocean floor, but we really don't have anything like an up close and personal view. Um, uh, and, and the reason for that is really simple to explain. Water is opaque. I mean, we think of water as transparent. You hold up a glass of water, it's, you can see right through it. But um, if you look, imagine in your head. A, a, a scene in the ocean, right? From you're looking at a beautiful waves on the surface. Maybe there's a little bit of sun playing off it. And I ask you, like, what's 15 meters underwater there? Is it is it a shipwreck? Is it a coral reef? Is it an old oil well that's continuously leaking? Like, you you have to go down there and see because water, especially when it's full of life and and bacteria and all sorts of good stuff, light water absorbs light. And by the time you get down, you can't see it. So we, we can see the surface of Mars. We cannot see the bottom of the ocean floor. So when, when people say, oh, well, we've discovered like, you know, we, we've monitored like 10, 15 percent. That's why. But I hate that answer. 
honestly. I've always been bothered by that. It's a deeply, profoundly untrivial, pardon the pun, uh, untrue description because the ocean is not a surface. It is a volume. The, mm. the life that lives in the ocean does not live only on the bottom. It lives throughout the water column. If I asked you, hey, how many antelope are there in, in you know, this stretch of Africa, right? Would you just like go pick some random spot and, you know, stand there and look around and be like, oh, I didn't see any. Like, there must <laughs> right. not be any. There. No, you, you'd find like watering holes. You'd use the geography to guide your search. You'd find valleys. You'd use watering holes, rivers, etc. In the ocean, the landscape is not defined by the bottom. Most of the biomass lives in the first, you know, thousand meters of the water column. Mm. And there's another 5,000 meters till you hit the bottom of the ocean. Most of the of life is going up and down, doing a, a thousand meter migration every day, right? And it's hiding from predators in the in the light so they they dive deep in the dark so they're safe and then at night they come up and munch on all the little phytoplankton that we're we're we're, we're fixing carbon and turning it into food and they don't care about the bottom they don't see the bottom they don't interact with it directly they they poop and their you know carbon drifts down but but they don't directly interact they are dominated by a landscape of light and chemistry little cold core eddies and warm core eddies that spin off the Gulf Stream. The, the daily transport of, of light as the sun sets and rises, making sheets of light and, and layers of light go deeper and shallower. So uh, if you think we've, we've studied, maybe you think we've explored 10% of the ocean bottom. We've explored nothing of the ocean. So we're talking about the water column here, and you're true. We're fascinated, of course, by the deep dives. We've gotten down to the bottom of the Marianas Trench. We've gone to the deepest part of the Indian Ocean. We're all about getting down to the bottom, to the deepest canyons. And what you're saying is the transit through the water column, which we sort of peer at as we're on our way to get where we want to go, is basically skipped. For sure. For sure. So so if you're interested in mapping in the bottom which don't get me wrong like that's important. super cool yeah it's it's important for all surgeries including the discovery of all sorts of rich you know biology right that there's it's it's a it's a really important thing but it elides the the bulk of the biomass and for many of us who care about whether it's you know protein from the ocean or whether it's preservation of those fisheries and not pulling that that protein and those omega-3 fatty acids out of the water column for those of us who are interested in carbon transport which is everyone that mid-ocean biology mm. is what dominates well and also just for those of us that care about uh, the whole thing, the planet as a whole, we're not just talking about the the, the line on the surface. We're interested in the, the whole space. And uh, you, what you're saying is absolutely fascinating. And I, I have to say, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Alan's talk uh, up on stage was absolutely riveting. And one of the things that I think you made very clear is that uh, the future of studying this space is going to be is going to require more than sending down uh, a man in a submarine uh, or a woman in a submarine or a robot that's tethered to the surface or maybe even just an autonomous we're going to need uh, millions perhaps of sensors going all over this space and and what we can interpret from that is perhaps can really fill in this picture can you talk to how that would work and and how you see the that part of the future evolving yeah okay so uh, there, there there's so many that's like a target rich environment there's so many good things in your question to, to address um i have a tendency to do that yeah well done <laughs> they're multi they're multi-layered yes i would agree <laughs> I, I have a tendency to talk for a long time so i'll try to tone it down <laughs> yeah what well so so let me talk a couple of things there so one is um 
we have it we you know we have earned or earned that's not the, we've inherited is better we've inherited a way of approaching the ocean which makes a lot of sense we go out in big ships to the middle of the ocean you need a lot of infrastructure to keep the people alive and keep everything moving and you go out in this big ship to the middle of the open ocean you drop things down to the very bottom thousands of meters down a big cable and you explore and that's great and we can take down all sorts of sensors we can take down cameras i got started in all this building fancy cameras for documentary work like you know it's cool you you can learn a lot by doing that um, and you take down sensors for dissolved oxygen, you know, and uh, turbidity and pH, all sorts of things, salinity, you know, uh, uh, conductivity and, and, and temperature. All these things you might want to measure as an oceanographer to understand the layers of the ocean and the dynamics of what's going on down there at a deep ocean vent or whatnot. And then at the end of your shift, you bring the ROV back up, you bring the, the lander back up, whatever, and you bring it back on the ship and you, you sail home. By the way, I live in Boston. It's a couple days steam away from home to get to open ocean with deep ocean, right? So you're out there for days on end on a big ship that costs fifty to $100,000 a day. You cannot do very much of that, right? There is not funding to go out and do that over the entire ocean floor or even over a tiny fraction of a percent of it. So if you're starting to think like, oh, we want to know what's generic. We want to understand what the large scale structure is. And we also want to understand how it varies hour to hour, day to day, month to month, year to year, season to season and decade to decade. We want to start seeing the effects of climate change, for example, on the life cycle and genetic distribution of the phytoplankton, the, the, the prochlorococcus that provide most of our oxygen. You want to understand that stuff. You need to understand the, the biology and the chemistry much more densely than could ever be possible by using a ship that costs $100,000 a day. You have to change the price point. And as long as you start with a ship that's $100,000 a day, it doesn't matter how cheap your sensors are. It doesn't matter how e efficient your data transport is. You've set the price so high that you will never get the kind of broad, dense, rich data that you need for lots of purposes. Let's talk about that lots of purposes because that's the key thing. And I think you're suggesting two things, and it seems so obvious, Tyler, I can't believe I've never really thought of it, that so much of the scientific investigative work is on the benthic, the abyssal plane. We're really fascinated by it. It is extraordinary. We love it. But this water column, and there'll, there'll be occasionally a really great video of someone's passing down to, you know, 5,000 meters. When they see an extraordinary crater on the way down, that'll be recorded, maybe captured. But the intensity of scientific interest in the water column is really seems like an obvious oversight. Yeah, I mean, I think so. L let me let me first. Just, I mean, it's not like no one thought of it, but right. it's true. We it, don't really focus there. Exactly. So so let me make a couple of caveats and then ignore them. So the, 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 the <laughs> caveats are first that we're coming at this from the from uh, a, a multi-day uh, workshop on ocean exploration. And that word exploration is very loaded and usually means finding things you can't you haven't seen before. Yeah. Right. And so that's profoundly benthic yeah right you're not exploring the ocean surface you're exploring the ocean floor that's but that's the traditional intuition of exploration the second thing is that there are tons of people who have studied the heck out of the first you know few hundred meters of the ocean because it's the most accessible part of the ocean and by the way it comes to the shore so w there's beautiful work exploring lots and lots of the ocean so i don't mean to, to mm -hmm. act like there's i don't want anyone to take away the the the, the, the belief that, oh my God, we've only studied the ocean bottom. Having said that, it's only in the past decades that we've appreciated how much of the biomass in the ocean lives most of its time below, or much of its time below a couple hundred meters, right? And the reason for this is pretty simple. Um, 
light gets absorbed by water. Mm -hmm. What that means is that as you go deeper and deeper, the amount of light there for photosynthesis is getting less and less. But the metabolic requirements, just being alive, making copies of your proteins, all that energy cost is not going down. So as you go deeper and deeper, eventually the metabolic costs are greater than the ability to pr produce photosynthesis from the light just because there's less light. Yeah. And you stop producing sugar. You stop producing food. And so production happens in the first couple of hundred meters and not any deeper. And so it's not shocking that you naturally expect that most of the life is in those first couple hundred meters. Right. The surprise is that it's not true. The surprise is that a huge fraction, dominant, way more than half of the, the biomass in the ocean is doing this daily migration where it eats and feeds at nighttime when it's dark. And then they hide they dive deep, deep, deep during the daylight to hide. And this, by the way, this is one of my favorite stories, leads to a beautiful evolutionary arms race. So imagine you're a little tiny fish. You're, you know, inch, inch, inch long, two inch long. And uh, you do this dial migration. You, you munch at night, you dive deep. So you're diving down to 400 meters, surrounded by 100 million of your best friends. Yeah. Well, if you're a sailfish and what you want to do is eat those guys, what you do is, you know, they're dark. It's, it's dark. You dive down 600 meters. And there you are, 600 meters, you look up and you see way above you, oh, there's a dark spot, there's a shadow, a shadow, that's lunch. And you swim up, you, you plow around in that little cloud of darkness and you eat them, which means there's a huge evolutionary pressure to not cast a shadow. So these little fish, they're not dark, their bellies glow and their bellies glow exactly to counter illuminate and cancel off their shadow. Yeah, so meanwhile, crazy. evolution's pretty smart. So the sailfish don't just give up, they dive deep and they develop I think it's in sailfish, the latest is, I think it's 31 rods, but every fish has its own approach to this. It sees 30 shades of blue, wow. right? So it can disentangle the spectrum of the sunlight from the spectrum of the glowing belly. And so, the, you know, light is playing this incredibly important role in, in this story, but it was all hidden to us when we were going out during the day, looking to the first couple of hundred meters and saying, ah, not, not a lot of fish out here. There's no such thing as a, as a, as the open ocean that's empty of fish. Okay. I've got to, I've got to ask, this has got to be connected to your, your background in physics and phys as, as you start talking about light and the spectrum and how that is all operating is, uh, I'm just curious. I hate to do a divergence, but I need to know, Tyler, oh, sure, how, yeah. how do you go from being a theoretical physicist and expert in quantum mechanics and gravitational waves to an oceanographer. Come on, you got to give us a little bit of the history of that. I was young. It won't happen again. Um, so, okay. So, no, it's a totally fair question. So, um, blah, 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 physicist, string theorist, teaching at MIT, love MIT, love physics, deeply, deeply love this stuff. And meanwhile, um, I had developed uh, totally randomly a sort of side hobby in underwater conservation photography and intersect high-speed imaging. So the, 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 the very short story there is um, strobes and high-speed imaging were invented at MIT many decades ago, 100 years ago. And, and, and it is now like a hotbed for high-speed imaging. And I also had a buddy who was an underwater photographer, peanut butter and chocolate. So we started shooting like... TV ad campaigns for the New England Aquarium and, and filming things for the Franklin Institute, basically for fun. 2013, I get invited to go out to Fiji as a sort of thank you from the aquarium to, for, for shooting the, the, the commercials they used when the giant ocean tank in Boston reopened, if anyone knows wow. that. Yeah, it was super fun. And Fiji, right? I'm a strength theorist. Like, I've never been to Fiji to dive. I love diving, but I mean, Jesus. So the answer is yes. But then we find out uh, that my wife is pregnant. We're going to have a first kid. And the due date is, is like two months uh, uh, before the, the cruise. And so I go, you know, I go back to the office after we find yeah. out. Yeah, exactly. Oh, damn. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I go back to my office after we find out and, and I, uh, 
I, I, I tell my buddies like, guys, I'm really sorry. I gotta, I can't, I can't go. And they're all, oh, totally no, understood, not a problem. I get home and I tell my wife, who's a professor of neuroscience at MIT, she's totally awesome. And I tell my wife, hey, by the way, I, you know, I canceled the trip. And she says, what kind of an idiot are you? We're not going to be the kind of people who don't do a trip of a lifetime just because, like, you know, we're having a kid. Like, yeah, you're going. So he was four weeks late. Four weeks after that, I went out and I flew out to Fiji. And every night on that boat, you know, my head's banging against the bulkhead as I'm trying to fall asleep. I'm still wet. And, and all I can think is that was the most spectacular soft coral ecosystem I've ever seen. And by the time my kid is old enough to see it, it's going to be gone. And 12 days of that, and something really clicked in me. Wow. So that was that. I, I, uh, that I, after that, I didn't publish anymore. I didn't start any more projects that were publishing and, and uh, you know, graduated my students. And, and uh, it's more tumultuous than I'm describing, but, but, I, but that, was, that was basically that. And then because MIT is an insane place, one of the deans was like, yeah, I don't really know what you're going to do here, but uh, yeah, we'll give you some lab space and a job and no responsibilities and see, see how that goes for a while. So I did, and that was that. Well, uh, that's a fascinating uh, and poignant transition in your life. And uh, one of the things that I think is interesting about what you're doing now is you're not just interested in uh, the science, the, 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 the exploration, the science. You're, act, you're interested in kind of the engine behind it, the private sector, yeah. the, the funding, the overall engine that's going to push the science forward. Can you talk about uh, how you see fueling this engine uh, I, you've got some f interesting thoughts there yeah absolutely so um so i spent the last uh what seven years now uh, at mit and woods hole um uh building instruments for ocean exploration i built the the edna sampler that's on the bottom of mezabar right now and 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 the radiometer and we've we've done some really and there's work there that i'm really proud of i love like that radiometer oh there's some beautiful technology in there but the thing is when the paper on that radiometer comes out we're writing it right now there's like six people, they're going to read it and their toes are going to wiggle and they're going to be totally stoked. And that's about the immediate extent, right? But I got into this because I want to have impact. I want the world that my kids inherit to have those soft corals and, and be as healthy as possible. And it became clear that I just wasn't going to be able to have the impact I wanted the way that I wanted in the roles that, I was, that, that were in front of me. And what became clear is that there's this desperate need for massively scaled monitoring, right? What we need is not a, just a few super high-end sensors going on a boat. We need millions of sensors deployed all over the world uh, to collect the kind of rich data sets that we need so that we can have industrial scale impact. I mean, most of the things that are bad that are happening in the ocean are happening in good faith, but are being done on industrial scale by, by industrial actors. And if you want to change and make more ecologically responsible, or, and make, if you want to make those industrial actors act in ways that are environmentally responsible. You need to make their bottom line incentivize them. You need to make it more profitable to do the right thing and less profitable to do the wrong thing. And you know, you could do that by penalizing them. So regulation has its role. You can also do it by making it easier for them to see what they're doing. And that's a huge missing link here. Industry can't, even when they're very well intended, I know lots of people who run big companies, even when they really want to do the right thing, they can't see what they're doing. They can't measure it. The, the sensors are too expensive. The sensors are too coarse. The, you know, the, 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 the challenge here is one of measuring and being able to see what you're doing so you can do a better job of it. And so that wasn't something that I could handle within academia. So last summer I left MIT, I 
I say this with like real twinging in my gut. I love MIT, but I left to start a company dedicated to building massively scalable tools so that we can help align industrial incentives with ecological responsibility. So this, uh, the, the company that you created, uh, tell us about it. And uh, this is the Oceanic Labs project. Introduce our audience to Oceanic Labs. Yeah, Oceanic Labs is, uh, is, is a, the new company in, intended to um, build instruments the way you build uh, cell phones, right? So like NASA used to build the space shuttle. It's this one off or a few off. And when you build a few of something, they're massively expensive and you have to make them massively risk uh, uh, mitigated, right? There can be no risk. You try to eliminate risk as much as possible. That obviously, it didn't work out quite as well as we hoped with the space shuttle. But if you think about it, it was kind of an amazing thing, right? Incredible. Yeah, totally glorious. And the thing is, that's fine for certain kinds of things. But if you want to, if you want to, uh, if you want to build a lot or that's not even the right way to say it. It's important that you re- that it's important to realize that when you build one of something, you use one kind of engineering. When you build a million of something, you use totally different engineering techniques. In- you're, instead of having one person cut this on a lathe, you're having it mass produced by machines in a factory. And the way you design that is totally different. And the, the cost structure of that is totally different. Mm-hmm. We all walk around with supercomputers in our pockets and act as if they're telephones. They're not telephones. They're supercomputers that incidentally let us make phone calls. And the reason that's possible, the reason your camera's as good as it is, is not because they built one. It's because they built 100 million. They know they're going to sell 100 million. All of a sudden, it makes sense to spend $50 million developing that camera. And, and that's what we need to do for sensors in the ocean. We need to be able to anticipate that we're going to sell a million of them and then use that to pay for the development of really good but massively deployable instruments. The other thing that I think is really exciting here, and correct me if I'm wrong and if I'm getting this incorrect, but if we can scale up the number of instruments deployed and the number of measurements being taken, my understanding is that we don't actually have to be super, 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 super accurate because we can, in, using computing, we can in, we can interpret the data much better. Can you talk about that? Oh, for sure. So there, so we wildly overmeasure lots of things. So there are cases like measuring, you know, currents in the in the you know benthic domain where you know a, a milli kelvin of you know, of difference in temperature really matters, right? And and. Most of the time, however, that's not true. Most of the time, we need a couple of decimal. One decimal place often is perfectly sufficient. It depends on the situation. Certainly, if you're in coastal domains where the temperatures change by a lot, you don't need to know three decimal places. You need to know one or two. But the thing is, when you're getting it, when you're buying an instrument, you're not just buying it for the precision. You're also buying it for the reliability. So if you go out and you buy some cheap temperature sensor, like how do you know that that cheap temperature sensor is actually really reliable, that it's been properly calibrated, that it will stay in calibration, et cetera? So what we tend to do to offload the, the, you know, thinking about that too hard is buy a seabird, right? You buy the most sensitive and precise thing out there, not because you need four decimal places, but because that instrument is totally reliable. Everyone knows how that instrument works. And it's, you know, you're, you're, you're spending money to, re- to mitigate risk. And you don't want risk in your rare special thermal measurement. And that's not where industry is. Industry doesn't need that. And industry needs a small number of, of data points, small number of, of decimal places. Let me see if I understand the picture here and uh, in the foundation of Oceanic Labs. It seems the, the, the proposition here, millions of sensors that are adequate to do the job, give us a more complete 
understanding of oceanic systems and processes, better understanding is the first product, coupled with economic, uh, economic incentives that correlate or are corresponded to ecological, better ecological practices, um, will give us soft curls that your kid gets to see in 30 years. Um, so the, this notion of better sensing, more complete understanding of the complexity of the ocean environment, and then getting into actually the implications of that understanding is where you're headed. And, and, you, and, you, and you find yourself in the position of trying to figure out how do we get people to do the right thing once we understand what the hell the right thing is. Am I following? Pretty much. I, th I think actually there's one thing I would, I would tweak in there is that we all we, no, there's tons we don't know. And there's lots of science that needs to be done in everything we're talking about. But for many actionable things, the science is established. We all know that extra nitrates lead to algal blooms. Like this is not myster mysterious, right. right? What we need to know is not that, oh, look, our bay has lots of extra nitrates in it. And that's why we've got a, a problem with algal blooms. We need to know that at two in the morning on Tuesday nights, the 14th tee on that golf course is dumping nitrates off. Mm -hmm. And then we can regulate and we can have regulations with teeth and say, hey, we noticed that you're doing this. Let us help you. First off, you've got a big bill coming. But second, let us help you find fertilizers that don't run off like that. Because, you know, it's important that your business is successful and your golf course is a morally fine thing. We just don't want you to be screwing the waterways. Right. Right. And that that kind of specificity, being able to know what, where, when, in a fine-grained enough way to regulate, whether that's coastal monitoring, whether that's waterways and golf courses, whether that's coral reefs or 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 uh, or or you know offshore wind, there are all sorts of and aquaculture. There are all sorts of environments where being able to see with resolution in space and in time makes it possible to be actionable. Wow, that is a bold and dramatic vision, and I think incredibly forward-thinking, Tyler, to really. It's it's and look it's it's a testament to the belief in science and information and knowledge that if we know how to do things better we will do them better. It's not an assumption because you're saying we have to then figure out how to incentivize people to do the right thing. Yep. Do you end up? Do you think you're going to find yourself into uh, deep policy discussions about economic incentives versus command and control regulatory structures versus you know where do where does this go for you? For sure. No. Okay. So the. the <laughs> I mean, as a technologist, it's a little something to say this, but the technology is not the hard part. The hard part here is the people. It's getting uh, right. people to do the right thing, right? So it, the technology is an enabling tool, but it is not a solution. It is a thing that makes it possible to have the right regulatory frameworks, to have the right enforcement frameworks. Making that happen is going to require interaction between, you know, industry, and I'm going to put myself in that box, and NGOs, government regulators, all sorts of different organizations. And that's why communications like this are so important. That's why workshops like this are so important. And that's why I've spent the last several years getting involved with NOAA and, ON, and you know, and lots of the, the regulatory bodies that, that live in that circle. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think you're 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 venturing into what, what I think is the the crucible of the issue, is how do we modify human behavior in a way that is more ecological ecologically sound, and it's it it is a conundrum that has uh, been the focus of attention by a great number of people. Uh, th over the last 50 years, really, since the early 70s and the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act, and how do we how do we get people to change 
their economic activities, the industrial scale actors who are doing things that are detrimental to the planet. What are your thoughts? How do we get industrial scale actors to respond to this understanding you wish to create? Yeah, you know, I think a lot of, as as a a dyed in the wool uh, environmental uh, activist type, um, I, I, I think we've spent a lot of time trying to convince individuals to do things differently. Um, and and not nearly enough time trying to convince corporations and industry to do things differently. And there, you know, there's a good reason for that. I mean, if you imagine, think about what it is to say, please don't burn any more oil. It means going to the small number of companies and countries that have the twelve trillion dollars of proven reserves and saying, please write that down on your on your books. Please just tr- throw away that money. That's not going to happen, right? So. What you can do, though, is you can say, oh, you know what? Uh, solar costs less to build than, than any thermal electric plant. You, you know, if you give me free heat, right? Forget whether it's from coal or oil or anything. If you give me free heat, just building the plant that turns the heat into electricity costs more than a solar plant. Why would you ever build anything other than a solar plant at that point, right? It's completely insane. So it, you, you win by making the good thing less expensive, less costly, and by regulating the, 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 the morally you know, problematic things. So I think in, in this context, I think it's a combination of trying to build tools that help companies do the right thing or save money, right? For example, aquaculture organizations that are, they're, they're pouring in food and they don't know how much to put in. And the way they check is they have divers go down and see if there are dead fish. It's crazy. So it's really labor intensive, but it's less crazy expensive than sensing. So let's start putting sensing to work there and start making it more efficient. And they put less waste in the water column and, and many examples like that. Well, what comes to mind is you started off talking about how the ocean is opaque. And now we're talking about basically transparency. Yes. We're talking about social transparency, not just transparency through the water column. We're talking, though we are talking about being able to see and detect uh, what's happening in the ocean in a more clear way. But we're talking about corporate transparency by way of measuring exactly what's happening. Totally. Absolutely. Corporate transparency here and and uh, industrial transparency is really essential. And I, I think as, as someone who's building up a company, like it's really non-trivial, but, but it's important. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, uh, one of the other things that you talked about that I'd love to just touch on in our final few minutes is uh, innovation by creating standards in the in the ocean exploration space. So yeah. uh, the trend here, ladies and gentlemen, as you've heard, is that we are uh, the technology is exploding as it is throughout society. Uh, there are going to be a lot of robots uh, roaming around the oceans. Uh, but uh, as the as it exists now, a lot of these sensors are kind of boutique uh, designs. You, you've, it sounds like you've made some of these beautiful sensors, but you, you see an opportunity in, in creating standards and that, that by so doing, uh, there will, you, that could spur a, a, a total innovation boom in how these things work. Can you talk about how that would work? It's a little counterintuitive, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. So when I was a kid, um, every computer had its own keyboard. And if you tried to use your keyboard from your, you know, Atari 800 and tried to plug it into your Apple, like, good luck with that. So that, you know, there, there's a whole generation of that. Meanwhile, you had to put the, the keyboard into the right port and you had to put the monitor into the right, and all, you know, and this sounds so stupid, but what it means is that big chunks of purchased equipment can't play with other big chunks of purchased equipment, which is a crazy waste of resources and a constraining of the growth of the industry, especially when all these companies are struggling to get to scale, struggling to get economies of scale, and you're you're artificially dividing the market up. 
that means it's harder for those companies to do the right thing and achieve scale and achieve efficiency. In the ocean, it's even worse because those connectors that you plug your, your TV into or your, your keyboard in, into your computer, those connectors have to be watertight and they have to survive to thousands of meters of pressure, right? So it, 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 the engineering challenge is upped. In, in familiar personal commuting, that's why we have USB. Yeah. Right. And USB 1.0 was awesome, not because the connector or the protocol or the interface or the specified interface was awesome. It didn't it wasn't perfect. There were, you know, all sorts of ways that it quite frankly was, you know, loud ideal. <laughs> right. Yeah. Lacking. Trying to find Lacking. a good play word. Shitty. Uh, right. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Good podcast. Yeah, there, that's a good podcast Festering word. dingo's kidneys. So they but the thing is the engineers who designed it and it was designed by engineers from big companies. They knew it. What was important to them was that they all pick one standard and that they interoperated with it, that it was intelligent, automatic, and then it was improvable. And that it wasn't owned by any one person. It's completely public. If you want to know the USB standards, they're all published. They're all completely open. Everything about them is it's completely open. Everyone wow. is free to build their own USB port, but they have to talk to each other in a completely transparent fashion. I see. That is completely missing. And what that allows is you build a keyboard. I mean, you don't have to also build a computer to work with it. Right. right, you can have a company that just builds keyboards, right? Not whole computers. It's amazing, and so and now have we have a big market and have a huge market. Exactly, I build sensors, right? And I want my sensors to work with the whole stack of platforms and data pipelines and all of that. But that's completely impossible right now because wow. no one has any standards, and we desperately need that. I love it. I'm getting it. I'm starting to catch on to what you're talking about now. Um, you, you mentioned at the beginning of your first remark was, do you know how much it costs to put a ship out in the ocean to spend a few days to collect a few samples? It's 100,000 bucks a day with the crew and the fuel and the thing. And and the customized uh, development of custom instruments, which is you know, got to be one of the funnest things for engineers to do. They love it. You've got research money. You're inventing it. You're designing it. You're building it. You're operating and the deploying it. I mean, yeah, it's, it's cool. got to be tough. So my question cool. is, are your colleagues going to be mad that it's no longer any fun once you get it all standardized <laughs> and they don't get to go to sea and they don't get to be as heroic as they are, which is to bring it out on a submarine and get it down to the... I mean, you really are talking about, I don't mean this facetiously, no, yeah. you're talking about a transformation of the way science is conducted to, to handle the economic barriers to, to true understanding. That's, I think, is that, am I following you? Absolutely. I think this is a case, uh, uh, my, my friend John Rubin has a beautiful dictum. It's, do not fall victim to the tyranny of the false or. Uh. And, and. So there will never be a replacement for the hyper-precise, hyper-specialized exploration of a specific environment by an ROV and a team or AUVs cruising through a layer. That will always be part of what we do for good reason. It's good science and it's awesome. People sitting still by a deep sea vent and sucking up knowledge will last. We're not replacing that. We're augmenting it. We're saying, wouldn't it be nice if when you go down to that deep sea vent, you also lay down, you know, 10 lines of 100 sensors each over a kilometer square. And now you have this rich time series that'll go for three months or six months. And when you come back the next time you pick those up and boy, you have a whole other way to look at that system. And meanwhile, that same technology, that same expensive to develop technology can be massively deployed along the coastline to tell you where the pollution is coming from and to help regulation so that you can enforce regulation. And uh, to go back to that last thing, I'm in. There's there the <laughs> this is great. the the blue economy uh, scalability here of having specialists who design, as you say, plug and play 
sensors and equipment that can then go on aquaculture sites or offshore wind sites. And this is going to create a whole new realm of competition where currently it's all boutique and, you know, everyone's driving a Rolls Royce of, you know, a handmade vehicle. Like we're going to get the, the benefits of the competition at scale. That's exactly right. So, so not to put too fine a point on it, I got into the scale thing because I started the interoperability thing because I was building instruments in my lab, whether it was a CTD or a, a whatever, some stupid instrument that was a sensor. At the end of this, at the end of the day, what we were doing that was awesome, that was ours, was this the part that touches the water and turning that into data, and then. Wait, when we do that, we also have to build a data logger and a battery system and a battery and a battery charging circuit and a, and all sorts of safeties and a housing and connectors and this whole infrastructure. And every time you build a new sensor, you build a whole new stupid back end. I mean, this is crazy. It's like right. you develop a new keyboard, and you, you build a new computer. And so I want to only ever build that sensor. I mean, not actually, but I, I would like to imagine a world in which a person could just build the sensor and iterate out a hundred of them without having to reinvent everything else. Yeah. Well, every point of information you get, it's, it's true. If, you, if you're taking a limited snapshot, you really can't get a full understanding. It's like you're saying, if you're trying to find the amp, uh, uh, antelope in Africa and you parachute into one particular location and you take a look, the chances that you are really understanding what's going on is pretty close to zero. You have to have scalable uh, uh, monitoring networks to truly understand. It's astonishing that we haven't we haven't attempted this so far because it's been completely customized to today. We're so used to doing it with satellites. I mean, that's how you do an awful lot of that kind of stuff these days. But the beauty mm -hmm. of that is the atmosphere is basically transparent, right? I mean, maybe not perfectly, but good yeah. enough. Yeah, yeah. And and we, the the intuition I think hasn't extended deep. But there's also another problem, which is that um, there's a valley of death in this space. If you're a small company. And you want to build some new clever technology. Ooh, I've got a new nitrate sensor. Ooh, I've got a new DO sensor, whatever. Uh, well, the first barrier you run into is that developing that thing beyond what's a lab prototype, but into something awesome, is going to cost you a lot of money. The development costs, upfront capital costs are not trivial. Okay, that's fine. If you're not already rich, which, you know, you go out and you raise venture funding. Great. You raise your venture funding. The venture people are like, oh, this is great. We love this technology. It's going to be really cool. And 18 months later, when you're like, oh, yeah, we're, you know, we're coming along, they're like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to sell you. We're mm -hmm. selling you to L3. We're selling you to, to right. right. And all of a sudden, you know, your, your technology goes to companies that have cash cows. The cash cows are military. The cash cows are oil. And on an oil platform, if the thing goes down, it's millions of dollars an hour or many millions. And, you know, they don't care what the sensor costs. Right. Right. And so there's this there. You can make huge margins, make lots of money by selling to those people. And that, by the way, is why we can't have nice toys. That's why, I, you know, boy, would I love an aluminum battery, but I'm not getting an aluminum battery anytime soon. Not because the technology wasn't invented and not because there wasn't a startup to do it, but because that startup, you know, disappeared into, you know, those services companies. What a cool thing. So Oceanic Labs, when did you start it? And talk to us about what you expect to do in the next year or two. Uh, yeah, Oceanic Labs, I had, <laughs> I started Oceanic Labs in, in February of 2020, which, wow. yeah, a month later seemed like a very bad idea. So <laughs> originally uh, we set up Oceanic Labs as a hybrid C3. So it was a nonprofit owning the IP and then a for-profit doing the commercialization. And over the past couple of years, I've been sort of beating that into submission. And I finally left, left uh, MIT in August to, to do this full time. And over the winter, it became clear as we were arranging our first, you know, serious capital investment round. We'd already raised some philanthropic funds, but so it's serious investment rounds for the for the for profit. It became clear that we could do it at this stage and maybe even a little bit more. 
But once we got to the serious large scope capitalization needed for building really tens of millions of sensors, we weren't going to be able to raise the capital because there's enough risk in that hybrid structure. It's a great structure. It served mm -hmm. National Geographic well, but but for this kind of thing, it just turned out to be unrealistic. So just recently, I've I've you know I'm, I've pivoted that. I, welcome to the startup world. I've pivoted that to um, to a straight up for-profit company, sure. which scares the padoodles out of me, but it is- The investors it prefer it. The investors prefer it. And so now we've got some really great impact investors who are mission-oriented and it's patient capital. So I have real optimism there that we're not going to fall into that horrible valley, but I'm, but it, you know- it's The a, valley of death. The valley of death. The valley yes. of doom. The yeah, valley of doom. Exactly. And, yes. and uh, so but I'm, I'm pretty optimistic about it and I'm, I'm there full-time now and uh, yeah, I'm thrilled. We're about to start hiring. We're going to be hiring a whole bunch of engineers. Um, and uh, yeah, it's exciting. What a cool gig. Uh, so if people want to learn more about what you're doing, follow along or perhaps apply for a job, <laughs> uh, how can they keep up with what you're doing? <laughs> well, we've got uh, a completely uh, cryptic website right now that basically says we'll be back. Um, but soon that will be a good resource. So Sianic Labs, um, there's a hyphen in there because internet is what it is the secret hyphen yeah exactly yeah um and uh, but also just you know feel free to, to to get in touch so it's not hard to find my email what a thrill what an absolute thrill to uh to, to learn more about what you're doing i just knew when we we just listening to you and then having a chance to talk briefly i thought this guy's really an innovative thinker i can't wait to have him on the show i'm so glad you made time well i'm really touched so thanks a lot thank you so much we really appreciate it i know our listeners do uh, from the 2022 Ocean Exploration Forum in Austin, Texas, ladies and gentlemen, it is Dr. Alan Adams. He is the founder of the Oceanic Labs Initiative, and I can't wait to learn more about it. We have got to, please promise me, sometime in the next six months, we can have you back on and get an update on what you're doing. It sounds awesome. I'd love it. Thanks so much for having me on. I really uh, appreciate the chance. Appreciate it.